Welcome to the Medical Menemis Podcast, your source for memory techniques and accelerated learning in higher education. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Uncovering memory, it's useful to have a better grasp of neurotransmitters and how they affect our memories. So today we are joined by Dr. Loretta Bruning of the Inner Mammal Institute to help describe brain chemistry and how students can use this information and knowledge to benefit their studies. Loretta, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself and the Inner Mammal Institute. Sure. Well, first, I absolutely must qualify that I'm a doctor of international management. That's what I taught for 25 years. I took early retirement in order to focus on new information that I was learning about human motivation. In my experience, both as a teacher and a parent, I was disappointed by the motivation level I saw. And let's say that it, which probably does not apply to people listening to this podcast, I did not have confidence in the social science model as it applied to motivation. I just didn't see it working. I looked around for more information, and what I discovered was the way our neurotransmitters work in animals. There was so many little dots of information. No one had connected them. And when you see how they work in animals, it's so easy to see how that is what's going on inside us. Okay, perfect. And actually, I think that's going to be a very interesting topic for our audience, which is mostly medical students, because even though we have neuroscience as one of our electives, the depth of coverage can vary greatly depending on the institute and the instructor. And obviously, anything related to memory is going to be useful when studying for medical school with the quantity of information we have. Yeah, well, those are two huge different subjects. So one is about neuroscience and the other is about memory. Let's start with memory because I know that that's everyone's primary goal here. So should I talk a little about how my work intersects with that? Yes, please do. So our brain evolved to learn from rewards and pain. So that sounds like old information, you know, 100 years ago, B.F. Skinner, but it's so empowering when you understand that your brain learns from rewards. If you get a cookie, then you learn whatever you did just before the cookie. This is an oversimplification because two things. One is with the larger human cortex, we can focus on abstract rewards rather than primal rewards. But the other is that our brain myelinates from early experience. So the rewards we wired ourselves to seek in youth are more powerful to our motivational system than conscious, intentional rewards that you seek today. If I could just give two explanations of how to use this for studying, and then we can go off onto anything you want. Dopamine is the brain chemical that tells any animal, this is it, this meets your needs, this is good for you. And then your brain connects all the pathways active at that moment. So when you get your dopamine flowing, then you build connections more easily and it feels good. So why not do that? Well, because it doesn't always feel rewarding while you're studying. So to me, that's the whole trick is how can you make studying feel rewarding? So to use a grossly simplistic explanation, if you're going to study for an hour, break it down to 15-minute sections. 
if you're going to eat a cookie anyway, eat a quarter of the cookie after each of the 15-minute sections. So that's just a grossly oversimplified way of looking at it. I gotcha. Yeah, we usually learn in neuroscience type coursework more how some of these chemicals are related to different diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and the type of pharmacology that goes along with it, but also understanding how this can somehow relate to maybe our studies and how we can impact or improve on our study habits, I think is something students can use. I know in past discussions, we've gone over the Pomodoro technique a little bit, which is sort of what you were talking about there, doing 15 minutes or 20 minutes on and then taking a break. And this can be very difficult for medical students. How sometimes we'll uh, study for several hours, maybe eight hours on certain days. And maybe that's not the most efficient way to do it based on our neurotransmitters and how memory is really evolutionarily or most effectively utilized. Right. So let's say hypothetically, a person says, that's the only way I can do it. I'm busy. I can only do it in eight hour chunks. One thing is, as I said, the expectation of reward. If you can clarify before you start in your mind, the abstract rewards that you expect to get you're probably already doing that, but um, it really helps to clarify the rewards you expect to get and give yourself, even within the eight hours, every two hours, give yourself a small reward of some sort or another, because then you're always going to be anticipating that reward and that's stimulating your dopamine. But again, the abstraction that this knowledge is rewarding to you because of what? I want to learn this because when you want to learn something, that's the expectation of a reward and that stimulates dopamine. You said we learn about these things in the context of disease. The disease model, as you know, is the focus of medical education and I'm not attacking that, but it has been distracting us from understanding the natural role that the, what I call the happy chemicals. They evolved for a purpose. They're not designed to flow all the time for no reason. They evolved to reward you for survival behavior. And the healthy functioning of neurotransmitters rather than just the disease approach is so valuable in mastering one's emotional neural network, which is not easy to do. Definitely not. So then would it be inaccurate to say when we describe a disease as having too much or too little of a certain neurotransmitter hormone that that's not how we should be viewing it? It should be more of a waxing and waning of these. Yes, exactly. And not only that, they wax and wane for specific reasons. And on my website, um, have a five-minute video that explains the specific reasons, intermammalinstitute.org slash happy power, because the happy chemicals, you have power over them because they evolved to reward you for specific survival behaviors. And when you know the survival behaviors, you can stimulate them. And then I also created a two-minute um, animation, intermammalinstitute.org slash animation. Okay, so that'd be a great thing to add to the show notes so students can go and look at those resources and kind of get a better grasp of it. If we are covering study habits, for instance, since we started talking about that, and you're saying that we can reward ourselves and build better habits. Are there particular types of rewards that you've found better for maybe specifically graduate learners or healthcare students that might differ from K through 
12th grade student that's going to be rewarded intrinsically by different types of rewards? Well, needless to say, I'm not advocating to to reward yourself with cookies. Intrinsic rewards, as we know, are better. But when you put marathon pressure on yourself, you're really extending those intrinsic rewards more than natural role. Let's think about how they evolved to work. Primates are not born hardwired with survival knowledge. They learn from life experience, from interacting with the world. And every chimpanzee learns to eat, to identify, it's suggested like over two dozen different types of leaves that they can identify, this is good for me, this is bad for me, this is, this is worth this much effort, this is good in this circumstance. And that's how they learn how to allocate their effort by how rewarding is that particular item. They learn that from the early experience and our sort of reward structure is very much affected by our early experience. So I would say it's very individual that each person can look to what motivates them from their early experience. But as you know, the reason you wanna be a doctor, you know, that would be like a chimp saying a year from now, I'm going to plant a seed because a year from now it's going to grow into fruit. So they don't do that. We need some short-term rewards. If we totally deprive ourselves of short-term rewards, our body rebels. Okay. I can see how just focusing even on a shorter term, not even what physician you're eventually going to be, what specialty you pick, just studying to the exam, which might be months to years away from your current habits, could really decrease your motivation and therefore possibly decrease your effort when you are studying? You mean focusing on the exam? True. Yeah. Focusing on the exam in the aspect that it could be months away and we're not giving ourselves smaller rewards in the meantime to sort of make up for lack of intrinsic motivation or whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. I was confused because even the exam is a short run reward compared to, oh, 10 years from now, I'll be an important doctor. You know, it's like it's too far away. So if you say, I'm going to give myself a vacation after I take the exam, but you could even say, I'm going to give myself two hours of doing nothing of like watching trash TV after my eight hour study marathon, or you could give, you could intersperse and give yourself a half hour of zombie time spread out during. I was wondering about that exact one because my fallback was always television, which is not the most stimulating, but sometimes you need the lack of stimulation after a hard study session, I suppose. Yes. And or um, something you enjoy. So when I say stimulating, I, I, it doesn't have to be in the good for you category, but what I like is something I find funny. I even say it takes some effort to make sure this is going to be really enjoyable comedy rather than bitter comedy. And that's a way to perk yourself up. For example, I have this improv theater that I love and I can do hard work during the day when I know I'm going to that improv theater that night. You know what I'm saying? So that's an example of anticipation of a reward. Okay. So every student needs to find their own happy reward that works for them, works with their schedule, their environments. And And their early myelinated circuits. Mm -hmm. And while we're talking about that, 
in the context of our early reward circuits, we have our early pain circuits. And this is another big topic. So the brain is always learning from rewards and pain, but the rewards and pain of our youth is what we got myelinated. Now the brain prioritizes pain over rewards. If you are anticipating pain, that's where your brain goes. You stimulate the cortisol and that has such an overshadowing effect. So what kind of pain is a person anticipating? Obviously, the risk of failing the exam is, is one. And another is whatever pain was big for you in your early years. So everybody can think about it. You know, it includes social things plus parental expectations. Uh, and, yeah. <laughs> accomplishment oriented things. Yeah. Since you brought that up, let's, that's a really important one. So that's this nexus between reward and pain. If you are trying to motivate yourself by a reward that you don't really believe in, and let's use, you know, parental acceptance, because it's like the carrot and stick if the carrot's always that far away. And, you know, there's the cliche about, do I really want to do this? But then there's the bigger one, the deeper one, I think, is even if you become a doctor, will you actually get the acceptance? Because I had to face that in, in my life. It was like when I was 23, somebody said to me, why are you still trying to please your mother? And I was like, wow, I can't believe I didn't, you know. <laughs> uh, I was going to bring up that the parental expectation thing might go much further for medical students in particular, where it's not just their expectations of becoming a doctor, but what grades they get if they're top of the class, what residency they get into, what specialty they go into. So uh, do you think that that sort of multi-layered aspect is really particular? And oh, I'm so glad you brought up this subject. So this is the subject of my new book, which is called, um, that I'm currently working on, not, not my new available one. My new available book is called Tame Your Anxiety. So that's the whole anxiety topic, learning from pain, whatever. My, the current book is called Status Games. Mammals are very status-oriented. Animals are very hierarchical in their groups. And this is something nobody talks about. It's very taboo. But serotonin, in research in the 80s, that you boost serotonin when you get a, a moment of one-up position. It's the serotonin is soon metabolized and you need to find another one-up position to get more serotonin. So everybody is constantly driving themselves crazy, looking for the one-up position in whatever way worked for them in their youth. So the more one may have a sense of accomplishment in the context of medicine, the more they may be driving themselves crazy to get that reward of social respect because it's natural for a mammal to keep seeking social respect because it spreads your genes. I wonder if that is possibly related to the increased numbers of burnout that's constantly reported. I'm not entirely sure or up to date on all the new research on that, but it sounds like it would be very relevant. It does. However, oh, this is another giant topic. I am quite skeptical about media coverage of mental health because there's this whole crisis mentality that they apply to every issue. And I don't think it's healthy for people to think, 
we're in a mental health crisis. In fact, our lives are better than they've ever been. We have more comfort, more safety, more freedom of choice. And now people are being constantly fed this idea that they're miserable. And, you know, that repetition builds a mental pathway. So I don't want to pile on to that. However, there are, you know, when an individual is perceiving themselves to be in a crisis because of this, this feeling of, let's call it serotonin chasing, the more we know that we've created this ourselves, that society is not forcing it on you, that you can have a great life without treadmilling, and yet our brain is designed to treadmill because our animal ancestors had no refrigerator. They had to constantly look for food or they would starve. So our brain is only designed to keep rewarding us or taking that next step. There's never this happy chemicals just flow. You have a level and you do nothing and they just turn on. It doesn't exist. So that's the flaw of the disease model. All right. So now that we have a better understanding of sort of the natural waxing and waning and what we can do to improve our maybe levels or develop better habits for studying in particular, since I'm sure a lot of the audience, I know I keep coming back to this topic, but since a lot of the audience probably runs into a lot of personal differences in the obstacles they run into during their study period, whether it be burning out on a certain topic or, or thinking they know how to motivate themselves, but not really identifying the proper stressor or happy aspect. Are there ways that students could maybe improve on that or ways or any research showing that we're actually accurate about identifying our own uh, happy situations and stress situations from childhood? There's a strategy called chunking. Have you heard about that? Like narrowing things down into smaller chunks. I'm usually hearing the term chunking related to putting similar... Yes, memory chunking, exactly. So the point is that you have to do your own chunking. So especially when you're having difficulty learning something, if you break down into smaller chunks, the thing you're having difficulty learning, then you give yourself the opportunity to have a small success and then another small success and then another small success. You get your dopamine going, you start anticipating success. So it's the whole idea of um, smaller chunks mean more successes. And if it's something you have trouble with, you have to just break it down into a smaller chunk. Now, how do you know when a chunk is over? Well, uh, you know, one thing would be, you know, to give yourself a small report to say, you know, I really have a problem with X. I'm going to just do 10 minutes of X, or I'm going to do X until I learn five of them. And then I'm going to give myself a small break. There's a great book called The Talent Code, where they went in and studied high-performance athletes and musicians among young people. They looked at what instructional methods they had in common. And it was this idea that, like, let's say I'm learning to play a piece on the piano and I make a mistake. So many people would think, oh, I'm going to start in the beginning and start again. But what they did is, no, you focus on the part you're having trouble with and you do it really slowly. So if you're having trouble with these 10 notes, just do the first three and keep doing those three until they're effortless because the effortless is neural connections, is myelinization, which happens better when you're young. 
and then add another three. So really small chunks with a lot of repetition. As opposed to what a lot of students would like to do, where you kind of say, oh, I'll come back to that part that I'm having trouble with. You really want to focus on that first. Yes. And another amazing thing when my daughter was studying for her college exams, when you do a practice exam and you get a, and then you have opportunity to check your wrong answers, she didn't want to check like her wrong answers to learn from the correct answer because it made her feel bad. So like, what? You're missing out on the best use of your time. <laughs> so whatever you feel bad, like anything in your study practice that gives you a bad feeling, which is like, let's just say when you were young, you had your core courses, the one you did the worst in, maybe your bad, your cortisol turns on with anything to do with that. The more you can address that bad feeling, it's just a circuit a cortisol pathway and our brain evolved to protect us from having to touch a hot stove twice. So anything that was painful when you're young, you're really built a big neural pathway to say, whoa, I'm not going there again. And so when you constantly expect yourself to face that again, you're sort of undermining yourself with lots of cortisol. So your time is well spent addressing that, that threat feeling and replacing it with a new positive affirmation. It seems sort of relevant to a topic I like to bring up a lot is uh, deliberate practice, where it really focuses on the effortful approach, not coming back to it later, not covering all the easy stuff, but really being effortful about not only your studies the first time, but how you review everything, how you come back to the material later on. Yes, exactly. And when something gives you a bad feeling, it's a good indicator that that's the thing you need to go back to. So therefore you have to face the bad feeling. And that's really the best use of your time and give yourself a reward after you face a bad feeling because you've done the best possible thing. I think I need to focus more on some of the reward aspects then. <laughs> Let's talk. You want to talk about um, other rewards? Sure. I think uh, that might be something that's difficult for students, at least some that I have experienced with and friends and uh, coworkers that don't always know how to reward themselves the best or feel like they shouldn't be focusing on the reward aspect. They need to keep trudging forward and focus on that part. Yeah. So here's an important thing that our brain evolved to focus on first um, material resource rewards and then social rewards. In the modern world where your belly is full so easily, your brain goes to social rewards quickly because you already have enough resources. Social rewards are hard to get when you're studying, when you're in med school. So that's the important conflict. So I would divide this into two separate things. There, let's just grossly call them introvert versus extrovert. So there are people who love socializing and are giving it up in order to study, and they can be more conscious about giving themselves small controlled opportunities to socialize because that's rewarding to them. Then there are other people who don't love to socialize. <laughs> they still need to give themselves, so there's two social chemicals, um, serotonin and oxytocin. Serotonin is respect from others and oxytocin is um, acceptance from others. 
And all it takes to stimulate them is small moments. One thought of so-and-so accepts me, so-and-so respects me. That's good enough. And in fact, it's better because people who are extroverts, they never have enough. No matter how much acceptance and respect they get, they never have enough. So whether you're extrovert or introvert, there's no right way. They're all difficult because animals have a hard time keeping their groups together because they fight each other. <laughs> That's why that we need to constantly renew our social acceptance. Otherwise, we'd leave the group and get eaten by predators. So that's the job our brain evolved to do. I like that simple category of social versus physical rewards, as most people probably think of a reward in a physical sense. I'm going to eat the cookie. I'm going to buy myself something. I'm going to watch television for a while, which would still, I would say, be more on the physical aspect. So noticing and recognizing that social reward that you might be missing, especially for an introvert such as myself, that was always a difficult part during med school and school in general. So for students out there that might be coming across that obstacle and not finding a reward that's satisfying, that's a good point to notice. Yes. So you can think about anyone you might have interacted with in your um, clinical interactions that you're getting acceptance, you're getting respect. They're two different things. You need both. And just thinking about not getting them about them getting in them in the future, because that just makes you nervous, but think that you've already gotten them. That's what can make your inner mammal have a moment of peace, a moment of happy chemical. Are there any other mistakes or pitfalls that students might want to be aware of when they're trying to set? I always talk about social comparison. And the, this is something that all mammals do, that our brain evolved to constantly make social comparisons because that's how animals avoid getting bitten by the bigger animal when they seek a resource. Now, I'll tell you that what happened to me as a college professor is like just classic, you'll recognize. People would come to my office and say, tests are not fair because my roommate only studied this much and I studied that much and they got a better grade. I could, like, I wanted to lay into them and I couldn't, you know, <laughs> but this is how our brain fools us. It's constantly thinking somebody else is better at something. Somebody else got all the goodies. They have easy. And when you do that, you just drive yourself crazy. So while you're studying, you could say, you know what? I have the rest of my life to make social comparisons. But for now, I'm going to acknowledge that my information is biased. And whatever I think about how easy other people have it, it's not true. That is a great point, especially for people that are preparing for or recently took the board exams. That is the largest social comparison between medical students and uh, similarly with other healthcare students that I'm not sure to the degree because so much seems to ride on that score. So all you do is compare yourself to other people. And if yes, yes, you keep doing yes, that, you're never yes. going to be satisfied. Let me use an another example I always use. If you think about what I say is the tabloids are actually a public service announcement because they show you that no matter how much success you have, 
you'll never be happy. You'll just worry about losing the success. It's the one-up feeling that, again, that's the topic of my new book, um, Status Games for Next Year. When you're in the one-up position, your mammal brain releases serotonin. You feel safe and relaxed because that's how the stronger monkey, it's like, I control the bananas and now I'm not going to hurt you. I'm going to be the good guy because I already control the bananas. <laughs> that's how the mammal brain works. We want that feeling. And in a, in a modern life that's safe and comfortable, we have everything else. So we obsess over that. And no matter how much you get a little better than someone else at anything, the serotonin is soon gone and you seek more and you will never be happy. That's like the person who like, I want to be in the movies, and then I want to be a star, and then I want to win the Academy Award. And then once they win the Academy Award, they're just worried that the public's going to forget them. It's never enough. So once you understand that your inner mammal is doing that, and you have to stop doing that to yourself. It's very much uh, relatable to an addict mentality, I suppose. Exactly. And that circuit is created the same way, which is it's never as good as the first time because the first time you got applause for whatever it is, and this is not just med students, but every human being, whatever thing you got applause for in second grade, you're like, oh, wow, that worked. That was more reward than I've usually gotten. That was more attention, more respect than I usually get. So your brain says, whoa, that's the way to get this good feeling. And that builds your serotonin pathway. And then for acceptance and belonging, that builds your oxytocin pathway. So you feel like you have to keep doing that thing again and again. I think these tips are going to be very useful for students and redirecting how they study in the future and what to look out for and the obstacles you might be setting up for yourself when you're doing it incorrectly. To finish off, I love to answer these three questions and you can answer them as broadly or generally as you want. But the first one is, is there anything that you wish you could remember better? Yes. When my children were young, like now, if I see a baby, I'm like, oh my gosh, babies are so cute. And I don't have any babies in my life now. But when my kids were babies, did I enjoy every minute of it? It's like, no, because I was, you know, it's, it's like I finally got a job as a college professor. I was focused on my job. My kids were crying. I, I it's like I hardly even remember their childhood. <laughs> I, I suppose you're babies can have babies and then you get the childhood aspect back. <laughs> exactly. You know what? And I just, I have a granddaughter who's turning one and it is very nice, but I wonder if that's why you always hear that you, uh, well, at least I've heard this a lot recently that you appreciate your grandchildren better. You get to focus on that part and get the second round. And, and yeah. also, I guess not yeah. a lot of the Yes, Other. exactly. And by the way, that's another giant aspect of my work from the perspective of evolutionary psychology. Humans are aware of their own mortality. Animals are not because um, death is an abstraction. So the human cortex is aware that you're not going to survive, but your mammal brain is obsessed with survival. So when you plug these two brains together, you get a brain that terrorizes itself this fear of our own mortality, which is natural and normal and pervasive. So the way in most of human history that people have dealt with it 
is by watching their grandchildren grow up because that gives you that perception that something in you is surviving and that eases that inner mammal's fear of not surviving. But in the modern world, very few people watch their grandchildren grow up for so many reasons. We have grandchildren later, they don't live near us, et cetera, et cetera. This whole mortality thing is a big part of being a doctor. So I thought I'd mention that. Wow. Yeah, that would bring up a whole another hour or two of conversation. <laughs> Next one, if there's one thing you could change in education, what would it be? Political correctness. It's just a disaster in education. That's why I left. To me, there's like no freedom of thought at all. You have to say whatever fits the progressive line of the day. Otherwise, you're shunned. And I'm free to say this because I'm retired. I don't work for anybody. Um, if I working today, I really sympathize with young people that have to live with this. And I wrote a book about that, which is called How I Escaped Political Correctness, and You Can Too. We're going to have to link your Amazon page here for sure. <laughs> And last one, I know everyone has some, I don't think anyone's actually happy with education as a topic or politics in general as a topic. So that's why I love to add these in just to see everyone's diverse questions, qualms, thoughts on, on these very broad topics. But that's why the last one is also kind of in that realm, and especially with the audience being medical students, mostly and healthcare students, is if there's one thing you could change in medicine, what would it be? If I could change the disease model as the way of understanding well-being. It's very hard because I'm not saying that doctors are responsible for you being happy. I really sympathize with doctors. I don't think the healthcare system should be held responsible for people's happiness. And so that's why it goes from one extreme to the other. How could we find a middle ground on this issue? I'd, I'd love to get more involved in this, but especially on the mental health thing, it's like normal frustration must be defined as a disease in order to get health care. So people are defining it as a disease. I don't think it's healthy to define it as a disease. But if we say learning the skills of managing our natural ups and downs of our inner mammal, that's good. But then I don't think that the medical system should be blamed for everybody's unhappiness. So there's a big thing of taking responsibility for managing one's own brain. And I know that practitioners can't say that in public. So I wish you could. I would assume probably goes all the way back to the education of sort of division of hard sciences, liberal arts, and different academic choices then that they don't necessarily correlate the best or communicate the best with each other. Well, and my view is a, it's political correctness that the healthcare system is being um, held responsible for people's happiness. It's, it's just blame whoever you can blame. So the healthcare <laughs> yes. system is an easy place to blame. And blame is how mammals bond. Mammals bond when there's a common enemy. For other resources for students, obviously we have the innermammalinstitute.org and some of the specific pages you recommended, as well as your books. You also mentioned the talent code. Are there any other recommendations that you would like for students to potentially look at if they want to know more about these topics? I have a reading list on my website, intermammalinstitute.org slash reading list. But um, needless to say, I don't expect people to have the time to listen. I, I mean, to read other things. But um, 
if they listen to podcasts while they're walking or something. I have a podcast called The Happy Brain. It's at happybrainpodcast.org. Well, anyway, it's all on my website. Oh, but I just wanted to say about humor. I mentioned my own videos and they're actually funny. I actually put spaghetti on my head to demonstrate neural pathways. So if you want your five minutes of humor, you could go to my videos. Oh, you know, if people want to learn about the animal brain in a way that um, they can is fun for entertainment, is the dog whisperer is a great um, entertainment that also teaches you about your mammal brain. Here it is. It's the anatomy of an epidemic. Magic Bullets, Psychiatric Drugs, and the Astonishing Rise of Mental Illness in America by Robert Whitaker. All right. That sounds interesting. Yeah, <laughs> sort of about the, yeah, about the expanding definition of mental illness to encompass, oh, we're all mentally ill now. Especially something for anyone interested in maybe psychiatry type professions to take a look at. Yes, yes. But as you know, every doctor is expected to address mental health concerns and even being asked for prescription, having to respond to that pressure for prescriptions. Yes. And these fields are constantly changing. So we never know by the time current students graduate what they're going to exactly be expected to do or how much teamwork they're going to have in their institute. So it's great to be as well-rounded as possible. Well, and, you know, dealing with that pressure, I have to mention that when I was a professor, I had no problems talking to a classroom of 150 people. But when one person came to my office and started whining, like that was really hard for me. So I can really um, identify with the difficulty of being in an office with someone who's pressuring you to give them a prescription for whatever it is they want. Are there any parting thoughts for current students or student hopefuls? Give yourself a big vacation after each milestone. (laughs) Proper rewards. I like it. (laughs) Dr. Loretta Bruning of the Inner Mammal Institute, thank you so much for coming on the show and discussing these topics with us today. Thanks for the great questions.